Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Welcome. If you're newer here and you have not observed an infant baptism done faithfully, and you have questions about that, how that could ever be, why anybody ever would, we'd like to talk to you about that. I'd also like to reassure you that not everybody in this church does. Uh, Even among the pastors and the elders and deacons, we have different views about the time um, and the mode of baptism. We don't disagree about what baptism means or what it does. We believe our commitments there are the same and that they're grounded very much in the scriptures and we agree that our children must come to personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and that baptism does not accomplish that, but rather seals it to them in the day that Christ blesses them with their own faith. So, we'd love to talk to you about that if you have questions. Now we're going to turn to God's Word together. Our text today is Philippians 4, 4 4-7. How do you do under pressure when difficulty comes into your life? How do you respond? Do trials bring out the best in you? You know, that's what uh, Job says in Job 23. He says that God ordains trials so that we'll come forth as gold. They are meant by God to evidence and and give a, a platform for the faith in his people to be exercised and displayed. He wants us to come forth as gold through our difficulties. But they don't automatically do that. They present to us a choice of whether we're going to persevere in faith, walking through this trial, accept it from God's hand, from his good hand, or are we going to turn to self-reliance and fear and anxiety and abandon faithfulness before him in the face of this difficulty that we're undergoing? Paul gives us this passage today to lay out for us how we can benefit from our trials, from the difficulties in our life that God sends our way, so that we can shine forth the light of joyful faith before men. And at the end of this message, I have a question for all of us to try to answer together, and I do invite your feedback at that point. So be ready for that, and don't be shy when I ask that at the end, okay? Let's look together at Philippians 4, 4 4-7. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the second of three concluding applications that Paul is making to his friends in Philippi here at the end of the letter based on truths that he's laid out in the course of the letter. The first application that we looked at last week was verses 1 to 3, and that was an appeal that Paul made, a very personal appeal, to two leading women in the church, Yodia and Syntyche, that they would get along in harmony with one another in the Lord. 
That was the internal pressure that, uh, that appears in Philippians, that the church was dealing with, that division, that strife between these women. That's the internal pressure that they're experiencing that Paul's trying to deal with here in this letter. But they're also undergoing um, some other pressures, external pressures that are bearing down upon them as a church. If we take a bird's eye view of the letter of the Philippians and you just take stock of all Paul's themes and his teachings and his illustrations and his personal um, anecdotes in this letter, what emerges is a picture of a church in Philippi that's going through difficulties and that those difficulties are mounting on them. And those difficulties are in the form of hostility from the surrounding culture and world. It seems like, uh, we're not told this explicitly, but the picture that emerges when you just take stock of all that Paul says here is a church that is facing the increasing threat of persecution. And I think we can safely guess the reason for this because it's the same reason everywhere in the Roman Empire at this time. Philippi was a Roman colony. And along with just a whole bunch of paganism and idolatry rampant throughout that society, the, the Romans in particular had a kind of religious way of relating to the state and to their emperor. They offered sacrifices and, and, and offerings to Caesar as a god. This is a common practice. And it was just understood that as a part of being a good citizen of Rome, you engaged in this and you participated in it regularly with, along with everybody else. Now, a Christian could not do that. A Christian's allegiance when it came to worship and, and ultimate authority has transferred from anything in this world, any created thing, to the one Lord who had made both heaven and earth and to his son, Jesus Christ. A Christian turned all of his worship because he's been redeemed by the blood of this Savior to Christ. And he he could not participate any longer in the idolatry around him, including the idolatry that involved praying to Caesar and calling him Lord without abandoning the one who had bought him and redeemed him with his own blood. And that put him at odds, a Christian in the Roman Empire, with his surrounding culture with his neighbors, with the rest of the town, to withdraw, to opt out of this idolatry would have been um, obvious, would have been noticed by everybody, it would have been conspicuous. You could not hide this. It's what everyone's doing, and if you're not there, it's obvious. And this would invite suspicion and odd looks and distrust, and at times, persecution. And we don't know if this uh, church, at the, time, at the writing of this letter, what, exactly what degree of pressure they're coming under from their neighbors because of their commitment to Jesus. But we sense that it's there in Paul's themes and emphases in this letter. And we, we believe Paul is writing to strengthen them and to prepare them and to help them stand in the right way. And what he gives us here in this, at this point in the letter by way of application, based on all these themes he's laid out, is the right spirit with which to confront the pressures and the hostility of the world. Some of the themes that Paul has talked about are his own imprisonment for the cause of Christ. That's where he starts. I'm in prison. And his view of that is optimistic and positive. He's like, 
Things are actually going well. God is actually using this for his glory. People are getting saved because of my suffering, my imprisonment. Everybody, even people in Caesar's household and his whole guard knows about this, that I'm here for Christ. God's using this. And then he goes on to say to them, when I come and see you guys, I want to find you standing and striving together and not being in any way afraid of your opponents. They have opponents. Paul acknowledges it. And he goes on and he says that those who, uh, well, he talks about Jesus being, have, like, being divine, being the one worthy of worship, because he's a God. And how this Jesus has been exalted to the highest place far above all authority, even above Caesar. And that every knee is going to bow before him someday, including all the Caesars. And he goes on to tell them that um, those who follow after Christ with purity, with pure hearts, they shine out like lights in the darkness. God uses their, their life as a testimony, a powerful testimony to the world of the truth. And then at the very end of chapter 3, right before this passage that we're in now, Paul draws on a concept that was very familiar to all the Romans, the concept of citizenship. And he says, folks, brothers and sisters in Philippi, you're citizens of an eternal kingdom. You're citizens of Rome, but you have been called out of the world, and you belong, your citizenship is in heaven, and you wait together for a Savior to come. All these themes are preparatory for, and, and, and a way of bolstering this church for a time of persecution that seems to be heating up and upon them. And Paul writes here with these concluding application, this application in particular, to give them the spirit with which they should meet this challenge and this pressure in their life. What is the response that they're to have when they come under fire? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 4-7, to what to do, where to go in response to pressures. He may be addressing the pressure of persecution specifically, but this applies to all of the, dis- the distresses and the difficulties and the trials of life equally well. This is the prescription for what to do, how to respond, where to go, where to run when you have difficulty that you face. Well, Paul says, in summary, that we should go to God and gladden ourselves in him. We could go to the Lord and get our hearts glad in him. And we should, in doing this, we should show ourselves always to be gentle trusting, prayerful, thankful, and filled with God's peace no matter the circumstances we're facing. That's in a nutshell what what Paul teaches us here in these verses. Now let me ask you, how natural is that? How easy is that? Is that your reflexive, instinctive uh, response to difficulty, to stress, to, to trouble in your life? Is that what you do? My wife Jenna can tell you it's not often what I do. And I'm afraid my kids could too. I took uh, Friday afternoon, I sat down and I tried to write out a version of this passage as my sinful heart would write it. As like if it was telling the story of what I do and it was commanding me to do what I naturally do, I tried to rewrite these verses with that message. I, I, this was Pastor Baker's idea that we give this a try with these verses, and, and I tried it on Friday, and I want to read it to you. Philippians 4, 4-7, to 
as my sinful heart would have written it. Why don't we put up the verses, and you can just kind of track along with how they're really written, okay? Complain and turn inward when things don't go your way. Yes, I say despair. Let your panic and irritability be felt by everyone. Your God is fear. Fret and victimhood are there to comfort you. Call on them obsessively through irrationality and sleeplessness. And the root of bitterness which corrupts many will darken your hearts and minds to God's goodness. Now, maybe you're a different animal than me. Maybe if you got, got honest and wrote this down according to your sinful heart, the details would be different. But I don't think it would be an utterly different story or message. And that's because when we encounter trials and difficulties, our natural, innate, instinctive t- tendency in our sin is to respond to them with irritation, with grumbling, with complaining, with anxiety and stress, with unbelief, bitterness, some combination of those things. It's not natural, but supernatural to do what Paul commands us to do. And so our natural response to difficulties is a very serious spiritual problem because God sends trials into our lives to test our faith and to prove our faith and to grow our faith. Each trial presents an opportunity for us to come to the Lord and to seek for refuge in Him and to seek for our, our satisfaction and our hope and our help in Him. That's why He gives us difficulty. It's clear in His Word. If we turn to God in our trials and faith, if we seek for joy in Him and help in Him, then the fruit we bear will be good fruit and it will be evident to everybody. If, if we don't, if we respond to them in our natural way, in our sinful fleshly way, with anger, anxiety, bitterness, and so forth, then the fruit's going to be bad and everyone's going to see that too. We will show ourselves to just be like the world because this is how the world lives. This is how the The fleshly mind operates. Paul writes to show us the other way, the godly way, how God's children should respond when pressures mount. So what does he say to do? Verse 4. The first thing Paul tells us to do is to gladden ourselves in God. Get glad in God. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That's very emphatic. This is, for the Apostle Paul, this is very emphatic. He's repeating himself with emphasis in order to show us that this is something of utmost importance that he really wants us to feel the responsibility of. Is there any word in that first verse that's your least favorite? What's your least favorite word? I have one. Always. It wouldn't be so bad, you know, if this was just sort of like, you know, guys, you you really ought to rejoice in the Lord more. Yeah, you're right, Paul. But what he says is always. And so always includes all things and all circumstances. That includes things like economic pressures of inflation, 
getting, not getting the job uh, that you wanted or the raise that you wanted, the water line breaking in your ceiling like it did to me, your furnace going out on the coldest day of the year, doesn't it always? Your mom and dad saying to you, no video games today, son. Fracturing your ankle and missing the season, being grounded for a month, things like that. But it also includes more serious and heavy sorrows, like a loved one dying, not being able to get pregnant for many years or ever, watching your child suffer, walk away from the Lord, a spouse being unfaithful to you, singleness when you really, really want to get married. Being a victim of emotional sexual abuse. Accepting humbly the consequences of your sin. Receiving a diagnosis of cancer. Or suffering for many years with a debilitating illness that nobody can diagnose. Being betrayed by a friend. You just fill in your deep sorrow. The hardest thing or the hardest things in your life. And Paul says this is what you need to do in the midst of it. This is your answer. Is Paul crazy to say to people who are hurt, rejoice? Is he insensitive and cruel? Hard-hearted? No, the Apostle Paul has suffered a lot himself. And he has a big heart for people who suffer because of it. And he's giving this command as the solution, as the prescription for where to go, how to get help, how to seek for ultimate relief and comfort and hope in the midst of your difficulties. Now what Paul is saying here is not, does not amount to whistling in the dark. You know that expression, whistling in the dark? <whistles> I'm not scared. I'm not scared. Life is great. The dark is not threatening. Whistling in the dark is pretending that things aren't as bad as they are. This is not what Paul's saying to do when he says rejoice. Something beyond that. Whistling in the dark, putting on a mask to pretend that everything's happy, happy, joy, joy, when it's really not. That is not godly. It's not honest. It's false. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes that there is a time to mourn. That's, it's, a, it's a Christian thing to mourn when it's appropriate to mourn. There's a time to mourn. Time to weep. And it is not healthy or godly to stiff arm the work of grief in your life or to mask over it with a you know, plastered on smile. But Solomon does go on a few chapters later to talk about a spiritual joy that can abide in the heart even in the midst of sorrow, heavy things, the, the great sorrows of life. He says that when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. That's a possibility. When a face is appropriately sad, yet the heart at the same time can be happy. Now he's talking about this same joy and rejoicing that the Apostle Paul is talking about. That is having something rooted in you of supernatural origin that is like a bedrock foundation of stability and comfort and peace and hope. That's something that's possible. And Paul is directing us here in these verses to the source of it. 
how we can tap into it, how we can abide in it, and the work we need to give ourselves to in the face of our difficulties so that we don't lose heart, so that we persevere, and so that we please the Lord. This bedrock of joy that Solomon talks about and that Paul is talking about, that is not something you can work up in yourself. It's not like a pull up yourself by your bootstraps kind of thing. This is not a function of mind over matter. You're not going to self-care your way to peace and hope of this sort. You need stronger stuff than what psychology can offer you. And I'm not saying psychology is unhelpful or self-help is unhelpful. I'm not, also, I'm not saying that efficiency, uh, uh, best practices and things like that are unhelpful. They really are helpful. There's a lot of practical wisdom in them. But they're only helpful increasing modestly our happiness. And we need something stronger than happiness. Happiness is tied to circumstances with, which change. That's what the word literally means. It's based on a couple of words combined together, merged together. Hap, which is a Middle English word that talks about, it speaks of luck and chance. So luck and circumstances. Lucky circumstances that result in a feeling of elation and joy temporarily. Happiness is tied to circumstances, and it rises and falls with them. We need something greater than that. Joy, spiritual joy, which comes from the Lord, is that different thing. It transcends circumstances because it rises above them. It it looks through them to one who never changes, who's always the same, who's always good, who's abounding in goodness and faithfulness and strength. So that's why Paul says not just to rejoice, but to rejoice in the Lord. Look to him, the one who is always constant and and always good. Look to him. Christ alone is the source and cause of this true and abiding joy, and it's obtained through spiritual union with him by faith. Joy is a spiritual emotion that is of supernatural origin. It comes as the fruit of a saving union with Christ who rules and reigns in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of His Spirit. From Him, through the Spirit, to us. Joy. Jesus told His disciples um, that He came to this world for this purpose. He said what He said and He did what He did so that His joy would be in them and they would know it to the fullness, to overflowing But we have to do the work of laying hold of it by faith. All the blessings that are of Christ, including his full joy, are laid hold of by faith. That's a work that is a gift of God, but we are called in the the faith that he has given us to exercise it, to reach out continually, to come to him for the good things that he offers. And so Paul is saying that to To us today, reach out and take hold of, by faith, the blessing of the joy of the Lord. It will strengthen you and help you. Are you doing that work? 
Maybe today you're in the midst of troubles or sorrows or difficulties. Maybe you'd say, the last 10 years of my life have been that. This is the work God calls you to. Come and find refreshment and help in the Lord. Faith is how you lay hold of the good things of Christ. So lay hold of them by faith. And if you do, you will find grace and peace and strength that will carry you through. You'll find and and experience the blessing continually of this, this bedrock core of joy and peace that will carry you strongly through difficulties. And Paul goes on to say that this will be evangelistic to everybody who's watching. Look at verse 5. We're told to find joy in Christ here and in our troubles, not only for ourselves, but also for other people as a testament to them and an encouragement to fellow sufferers. Paul adds in verse 5, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So Paul has the watching world in mind as he issues this final command. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. A Christian who in the middle of his difficulties abounds in joy. Who expresses contentment and and a supernatural peace that holds him steady and in check. Like a rudder, not a rudder, an anchor on a ship that's battered by the storm is kept from the rocks of destruction by the, this anchor. That's what this joy that comes from the Lord is in our life. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, get rid of difficulties for us. Jesus never promised us ease or comfort in life, in our circumstances. Always, always happy things. No, quite the opposite. He said to expect trouble. But he says you can have peace and joy and rest and a place of safety within you through faith in me. There should be something different about the way you, as a Christian, go through difficulty. Different from the world around you. God wills it so, partly for your sake, but also for everybody else around you, for the watching world and for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Otherwise, if you don't exhibit this kind of faith and this, look for this joy in the midst of your difficulties, how is anybody to know that there's anything good about your God? This is how we display it. This is one of the great ways that God has given us to witness is that when we suffer in faith, there's something different, quantitatively different about that than what everybody else can do. You're not able to do it in your own strength. You have supernatural strength, the strength of joy working within you. There should be something different about the way we grieve as Christians. Paul talks about this, that we don't grieve as others do who have no hope, because we have hope. We grieve, but not as without hope. There should be something distinct about the way a Christian suffers uh, wrongs, abuses. Jesus, as he died on the cross, carried himself in such a way that a centurion standing by said, surely this is the Son of God. Surely. How did he know that? Something different about the way Jesus suffered. How were the other guys suffering around him? They were hurling abuses and curses at Jesus. So were all the people in the crowd. And how did Jesus respond? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He responded with compassion, with gentleness. 
Let your gentleness, Christ-like gentleness, be known to all men in the midst of your troubles. That's what Paul is saying. There should be something different about the way um, a, a, a Christian suffers shame and abuse. How did Jesus do this? How did he respond to this incredible hostility towards him with grace and peaceableness? The same way, the same way that Paul calls us here, by putting joy before us and seeking it in the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, because of the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame. He accepted it with grace and peace, patience, kindness towards those who were accusing him because of the joy that was set before him. There are people in certain corners of the Reformed world. If you don't know what that is, it's okay, but this is the sort of theological, ecclesiological circles that this church um, meddles in, dabbles in. Certain, it's a small world, and this, there's an even smaller corner of it where people talk a lot about how happy they are in their contest with the world. They're just, that's the way to go about it. If you want to like, really engage with the world, you've got to be cheerful, you know, like broad-shouldered and cheerful about it. That's, that's, the, that's the right approach. But those same people are the ones who shout the loudest about their rights. And about how everyone's always stealing our rights and, and robbing us of our freedoms. They, I mean, they, t- they raise quite a ruckus about this all over the country. This is not the peace of Christ. This is not the joy that Paul is talking about. Because the joy that Paul is talking about results in peaceableness, forgiveness, generosity. Selflessness. We want that joy, this joy, Christ-like joy, as we suffer abuse. There should also be something different about how a Christian suffers want or need. We see this in verse 6. Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul is clearly channeling Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't don't fret about asking your, saying things like this in a a spirit of panic. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to clothe our bodies with? Why does Jesus say not to do that? He gives a couple of reasons. But the, the big one is, Because that's what the Gentiles do. That's what the worldlings do. In Jesus' day, the worldlings or the Gentiles were people who uh, were outside of the covenant of God and were not under his care. So he's speaking to the children of God and saying, don't be like the people who are outside of God's household, not under his care. That was, at those days, the Gentiles. In Paul's days, he probably would have said it, don't be like the pagans, this is, how, this is what the pagans worry about. Don't be like them. That's, that's, they worry about this because this is what's natural to do. Because outside of Jesus Christ, we, have, we are spiritual orphans. 
We have no knowledge or confidence in the care of God, but rather a sense of animosity and separation from him, and we live under his judgment. We try to keep that judgment out of our minds as much as we can, but, when, but whenever we think about our needs, we think, I got to see to that. And so the way that we see to that in our natural flesh is we worry. We think about tomorrow, and it stresses us out. And we think, how am I going to, how am I going to be fed? How am I going to be clothed? What am I going to do about the problems that I see coming and I'm afraid of? What am I going to do about the future? And Jesus says to be different. He says, don't worry about those things because the Gentiles worry about those things. Rather, trust your heavenly Father knows already what you need and is going to provide them. That's what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Anxiety, worry, that's the way that we try to exert control over things beyond our control. Things beyond our control are things in the future and many things around us here and now, but especially things in the future out there in front of us. And they scare us. There's lots of th- concerns there. And the way that we f- try to, f- to make our fail ourselves or fool ourselves into feeling like we're in some degree of control over them is we exert anxiety. We express anxiety and worry. That's how we try to control the future. We like to will it by my effort inwardly to come into some sort of happy existence. When we do that, we are acting just like the Gentiles, like spiritual orphans who have no father. When all along God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ to be a perfect and loving heavenly father who blesses his children with everything they need and then some. Who's looking out for us. Do not worry about tomorrow, says Jesus. Says Paul. How do we lay anxiety aside? Because it's always there, ready to pounce on us. The moment some concern or fear about the future comes into our minds, anxiety is ready to go, "Ah!" tackle it, address it. That's the response. It's just instinctual because of our sin, because of our fear. Well, the the vehicle that Paul, that Scripture gives us, for how we entrust ourselves to God's care and turn away from anxiety is prayer. This is how we turn away from that default unbelieving fear and worry. And we don't just say, stop it, Jody. (laughs) Stop itself. Quit being anxious. No, God gives us a vehicle by which we can put it away and, and turn. We have to turn by way of prayer and cast our cares on the Lord. Do you pray? In the middle of your difficulties, when you come up against challenges and stresses in your life, do you pray? I have been so convicted in preparing this sermon about my own prayerlessness. And I want to share with you, I want to get real for a second, real, about an area of prayerlessness in my life that is shameful. I have developed a habit in the last, I'd say, five or six years of cursing under my breath. 
And the reason I do it, I've observed, I do this like reflexively. Whenever a thought from the past that embarrasses me or I'm ashamed of flitters through my brain, I curse. And I think I do that because of the shame. That's a way of mediating the embarrassment. That's how I'm wired. I hate to be embarrassed. (laughs) I sweat at the thought of it. (laughs) And when the thoughts of prior embarrassments and shameful things come into my mind, my instinct and my sin is to swear as a way of just trying to get rid of them, deal with them, mediate the tension and the anxiety that wells up in my heart at that moment. While all the time... There is one who has borne my shame on a cross and has accepted me as a sinner and has given me everything I need to be fully accepted of the Father and loved. And, and, and he is not ashamed of me, not ashamed to call me brother. And I could turn to him in prayer And have him remind me in conversation with him of his acceptance and his love. We have all kinds of ways that anxiety afflicts us and all kinds of sinful responses to it. I share this to you so maybe it will call call some to your mind. And Paul says, Pour out your heart to the Lord in prayer. Make your needs known. Oh, Lord, I need clothing for my shame and my embarrassment that I'm remembering and feeling. Would you give me that and remind me that I am safe and secure in you? And you've already borne my shame and we're we're okay. I'm okay because of your work. That's the work of going to the Lord in prayer, making your requests known. It's not just prayer that we're exhorted to, but prayer with thanksgiving. Psalms are filled with expressions of thanks to the Lord, just filled. Read them and instruct yourself as a language of this prayer, of thanksgiving prayer. Jesus thanked the Father as he prayed. I thank you, Father. The Apostle Paul, in this very letter, gave prayers uh, in his prayer report. He reported about how he prays with thanksgiving. He says to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. There's a man who practices what he preaches. Is it your habit to thank God as you make your requests known to him. We often think that it's enough just to, you know, we've done enough just by, just by submitting our needs to him. But God says, Paul says, no, do it with thanks. Why is that so important? Why is thanksgiving so important in prayer? Well, it's what God is do. Why is it important for you? What does it accomplish in you? Well, thanksgiving is a confession of joyful dependence upon the Lord. That's what it is. It's a confession of joyful dependence upon him. 
it joyfully acknowledges that he is able to provide, that he delights to provide, that he has provided. And that is, that is an exercise of faith. And God says, anybody who comes to me in prayer needs to have faith, or he can't expect to receive anything good from me. Faith is how you're to approach me. And prayers with thanks are prayers of faith. It is an exercise in joyful dependence upon the Lord. So make it a habit to thank the Lord when you pray to him. Thank him for listening to you. Thank him for being good. Thank him for past prayers answered. Thank him for his attributes and his works. Thank him for undeserved mercies that you experience every day. This is going to stir up your heart to joy. What will the result of this be in your life? Verse 7. When you turn away from anxiety and fear in thankfulness and prayer, and you make your request known to the Father, what will you experience in your life? Paul leaves us with this promise. He says, you do this, brothers and sisters, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you joyfully, prayerfully entrust yourself to God in Christ in the midst of your difficulties, you are going to know and experience God's peace guarding you, protecting you, watching out for you. You're going to experience it in your core. He calls it a peace that passes all comprehension because it's supernatural peace that abides with you even in the middle of difficulty when normally you would be stressed to the max and would fall to pieces. God's peace will be there if you do what Paul is calling you to. If you turn to Christ to find joy in him, if you make your requests known to him in a spirit of thankfulness, you're going to find peace and it's going to abide with you and carry you through life's difficulties and storms. Fretful anxiety, if it's left unchecked, is going to lead you to ruin, into darkness, into bitterness, away from the Lord, spiritual destruction. You must turn in faith to the Lord Jesus for your needs. Okay, I said that we would end with a question. And I want you to answer it, okay? Speak up. Speak freely. Here's the question. What about Jesus should gladden our hearts in the middle of difficulty? What about Jesus? What attribute of Him? What work of His is there to give us comfort and joy and peace in the middle of difficulty? You got some things? Shout them out. The Holy Spirit. Spirit. He gives the Spirit. He's sovereign over all things. Okay, one at a time. I know. His reconciliation that we have peace with God through him. We have a father through the Lord Jesus Christ. What did you say? Kohler, did you say something? Okay, that was you. Gandalf, did you say something? He died for us while we were sinners. He's our mediator. He's faithful. 
Exactly the same thing, both of you. He's tempted like we are, without sin, and so he's able to do what? Sympathize with our weakness, tenderness towards us. What? He'll never leave us, forsake us. He prays and intercedes for us. And his spirit, too, when we don't even know what to pray, prays for us with words deeper than we can even express. He's our brother. He's carried our griefs, borne our sorrows. He had problems at work. <laughs> That's getting helpful. He had to put up with annoying people. He loves little children. He takes care of us. Amen. Have He loved Jews? I thought, well, David. <laughs> he loved Judas. He was rejected by those which he loved. He suffered embarrassment. He knows our frame, that we are but dust. He prayed for us on the cross. Have we exhausted it? We've barely begun. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Amen? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would fill us with a spirit of joy and delight in our Savior Jesus, in his work for us, in his holy character, in the satisfaction that he has made for our sins, in the perfect obedience that he has rendered for us, which is ours by faith. Oh, Father, these and so many other things, may they fill our hearts with joy. Cause us, Father, to be people who look in response, in immediate response to difficulty to the Lord for help, for comfort, for joy. And would that joy abide in us? Would you make us obedient to this word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.